Well, here we are back in Isaiah 53, and we've had such a joyful time in this rich passage. My original plan was to take 12 Sunday nights to go through this. I cut it down to four because we eventually have to finish Isaiah. But I want to talk about humiliation. One of the worst human experiences we can have is the experience of being humiliated. We can experience humiliation in ways that maybe later at least seem humorous. Like the time in seventh grade, I ran into a metal pole in front of my whole class and knocked myself out cold. And 30 years later, that was funny. It took a while to get there. But humiliation can also be so degrading and so debasing that to a certain degree, the memory of it stays with you for a lifetime. And many of you probably could share that as well. But here's what I think is the worst humiliation possible. Revelation 20 describes the great white throne, the judgment throne of God, the Son of God on the throne who is appointed to judge humanity on behalf of his Father. And books are pictured as being brought to the throne. Books and books and books. And Revelation 20, beginning in verse 12, says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Or to put it in terms that we can relate to a little bit better, picture that you've been brought to the throne of God and there you are standing right in front and this giant video screen starts to come down slowly and a video pops up and there's a title and it's a video entitled The Life and Deserved Death of and your name is there. And a video of every sin a transcript of every sinful thought, a recording of every sinful word, every secret sin, everything you ever thought you could hide, all of it will be laid bare on this video before God, before all the witnesses, before the throne. The the video won't contain any editing. It won't contain any lies. Everything exactly as it happened. There will be no opportunity to defend yourself because your sins are indefensible. And so silently, you're forced to watch as all of heaven sees every horrible thing you've ever done, ever thought, ever conceived of. This is what's going to happen. And this is what you deserve. To be humiliated to an immeasurable depth, to receive your just punishment, to be cast alive in a resurrected body into the lake of fire along with all chance for redemption. No more second chances, no more hope. The age of grace is done. It's finished. Now that alone should be enough to drive us to plead with God for mercy. Some have said that it's, a, it's wrong to want to be saved just to escape hell. I think that's a spectacular reason to want to be saved. But God is just, and that video still exists. You have committed those sins. That's not a fantasy. It's true. Every one of you has those books, those videos, as it were. Humiliation and punishment must happen, or God is not righteous, and God is not a just and holy God. And so in the grand halls of heaven, when the problem of sinful humanity must have a solution to satisfy the justice of God before time began, the second member of the Trinity the very glorious Son of God. He offered Himself according to the plan of His Father, and I have to wonder if perhaps He used similar words that Isaiah would have used, Here I am, send me. And so the events of redemption are set into action, and this would necessitate the humiliation of the Son of God. This must take place. 
It was humbling. It was humiliating enough that the Lord stepped out of eternity to take on the human existence, restricting the demonstration of his full glory. It was humbling and humiliating enough that he had to have a mother, that he had to grow up in a dirty, sin-infested world, that he had to be obedient to sinful parents when he himself was sinless. That he was obedient, and not just to come to earth, Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And our text tonight, specifically Isaiah 53, 7-9, it deals with the humiliation of Christ, what he had to endure. And as part of the bigger picture of our series, God's plan for Israel and the nations, it's a redemptive plan. It's a plan to purchase back sinful humanity. And tonight we're looking at what we're calling the humiliation of Christ revisited. And why are we saying this? Well, you recall that Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12 is one literary unit. And we we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. There are three verse sections formed into a structure in which three themes are highlighted. Two of them are repeated. And the middle one is the crux of the whole passage. And so the themes we saw were first the exaltation of Christ, Chapter 52, verse 12, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Verse 13, rather. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Then the second theme we saw was the humiliation of Christ. Chapter 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And in the middle, the whole thing, the entire point of the passage, the propitiation of Christ, that satisfaction of the wrath of God. And we saw that beginning of verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So those are the three themes. The exaltation, the humiliation, and the propitiation of Christ. But now it begins a return. And so now the text returns in great detail to the humiliation of Christ once again. And so we're looking at the humiliation of Christ revisited. And we find this beginning in verse 7. Follow along with me to our primary text for this evening. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I want to just walk through this text very simply tonight. I'd like to show you four stages to the humiliation of Christ Four stages to the humiliation of Christ. The first stage we could call his arrest. His arrest. Verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Oppressed is a word that means to be pressed or driven. It can mean to exact a price. 
But this particular verb is what is called a, a passive or a reflexive verb. It means that the person doing something is doing something concerning himself. And so this means that Christ humbly offered himself to oppression. He humbly offered himself to be taken away. This was his idea. This was his doing. This was his father's doing. This wasn't the doing of mankind. Verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, oppression here, this is a different Hebrew word. It means to be restrained. It means to be held back. It can speak of being imprisoned. It can also speak of actual physical restraints, ropes, or in our, our day, we would say handcuffs of some sort to use on a prisoner. He was taken away by judgment. The text doesn't specify for us whether this refers to his arrest or to his trials. It doesn't really make any difference. He was already prejudged. The outcome of his trial was already a foregone conclusion. When Jesus was arrested, he was already condemned. There was already a death sentence against him. The conspiracy, as revealed in Matthew 26, verse 4, said, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Not arrest Jesus, put him on trial and see what the judges say. It was to arrest him and kill him. Jesus himself had already told his disciples he would be arrested. Matthew 17, 22 As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And so the night of that final Passover, you'll recall that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place that he would have been with his disciples many times. It was an obvious choice for Judas to find Jesus. And when Jesus came with the, when Judas came rather with the temple guard, what did Jesus do? Did he hide behind a tree? No, he went forward to meet them. He went to where they were. And he says, according to John chapter 18, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And the entire arresting party, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, what was the point of that? Was it just one last little aha before he was arrested? No, that wasn't the point. The point was that Jesus demonstrated that he was going to be arrested only if he allowed it. That was the only way he would be arrested. And so he asked them again as they were getting up and dusting themselves off, whom do you seek? Again, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They probably went like this at that moment. Jesus said, I told you, I am he. And he told the soldiers at that moment, let my disciples go. And that was to fulfill scripture. And so to identify Jesus, Judas came forward and he was to give him a kiss of greeting. But as Judas was coming forward to kiss Jesus Jesus spoke first, according to Luke's gospel in Luke 22. He said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Kind of let all the air out of the dramatic moment that Judas was trying to create here. But Judas went on with the charade and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he gave him a kiss on the cheek. Jesus told him, Friend, do what you came to do. Matthew 26 tells us that. And he just stood there. The temple guard with clubs, and swords seized Jesus and Peter at that moment drew a sword and he cut off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant and that was supposed to cause a battle and maybe a free-for-all and maybe Jesus could get away and maybe the disciples could get away but apparently all that happened was that Malchus's ear fell to the ground and he said, ow, and nothing else really happened and Peter stood there Jesus said, no more of this. Jesus touched Malchus's ear. Interestingly, the last healing of Jesus on earth is to heal an enemy. 
And he told Peter, put your sword back. Don't you know that I could ask my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels? So then Jesus told Peter that scripture must be fulfilled. He must allow himself to be arrested. And so he turned to the arresting party and he said, according to Matthew 14, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple preaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. What was he doing? He was letting them arrest him. A friend of mine in Texas a number of years ago, he told me a story about one of his friends, a young man who poured his life and his time into a very, very fast car. And on the long, straight back highways of central Texas, his friend liked to drive upwards of 150 miles an hour in this car. And it was faster than any of the sheriff's department or highway patrol cars could go. But in a Texas sort of way, he was an honest man. And so he didn't mind speeding, but he also respected those who wore the badge. And so one day he was cruising in his well-known car down a highway going well over 100 miles an hour. And from the classic uh, Texas sign comes the cop coming out and he goes and chases after him and the friend pulls over and the highway patrolman came up to his window and humbly said, thank you for pulling over, sir, because I know you didn't have to because his car was way faster. This is what Jesus did. He didn't have to be arrested. He, he wasn't forced into this. In fact, he almost had to orchestrate the event himself. He almost had to say, okay, you guys stand over here. You guys stand here. Three, two, one, arrest me. He made the clear point that no one arrested him against his will, but he had to mediate to make it happen. So you see, when someone reads Isaiah 53, 7, that he was oppressed in this passive reflexive verb tense, which means he offered himself willingly. And then they read the gospel account of the arrest of Jesus. This is clearly the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Clearly is Christ. And how humiliating that they would bind his hands, that they would put some sort of restraint on him, the hands which had wrapped around his Mother's fingers as an infant, the hands which had miraculously made bread and fish multiply for thousands and thousands of people, the same hands which touched the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, the same hands which gestured as he gave the gospel message to any who would hear, who he offered the kingdom to any who would come to him, the hands which held and embraced eager little children who would come to him, the hands which metaphorically hold the entire universe in place, according to Hebrews 1. How humiliating in his arrest. There's another stage of the humiliation of Christ, his trials, his trials. Now we looked at at his trials in some detail last time, but Isaiah 53 points out an important detail about his trials, and that's how Jesus handled them. So we see this in the rest of verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, if you're a Jew reading Isaiah 53, this is a clear reference to the Passover lamb. And you would see this very obviously, the helpless little one-year-old lamb offered by Israelites with its blood sprinkled on the doorpost of the homes in Egypt the night that the Lord would strike the firstborn of all of Egypt. The Israelites were spared this disaster because of the sacrifice of the lamb in place of the firstborn. But there's a difference between the Passover lamb 
and Jesus, whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. The little Passover lamb is taken into the home for several days before Passover. He becomes very much like a pet, and he's comfortable, and he's warm, he's innocent, he's cute, and he becomes a part of the family for a number of days. But that little lamb has no idea what's coming. And so it's relaxed. He thinks, I've made it. I'm in the house. Until that moment when the head of the family takes the lamb and quickly and humanely kills that lamb. The lamb never really knowing what happened, never knowing why. But not so with Christ, the lamb of God. He knows exactly why. And not only is humane treatment not going to happen He knows precisely why he's going to be tried and precisely what's going to happen to him. And yet, like a lamb led to slaughter, he makes no protest. He makes no defense at all. At his first trial, recorded in John chapter 18, an illegal middle-of-the-night trial before Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, Annas questioned Jesus about his teaching. And apparently he was trying to get Jesus to say something that would be self-condemning John 18 tells us, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. Jesus didn't defend himself in the least. He simply said, why are you asking me what I teach? I've been doing it openly for three and a half years. One of the officers hit Jesus at this answer and Jesus simply said, if what I said is wrong, say what is wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He's not giving a defense of his teaching or his ministry. He's simply saying that everything he taught is a matter of public record. At the second trial, Jesus is taken now to the high priest Caiaphas and now a bigger crowd is gathering. Some of the scribes and some of the Elders are there. It's still an illegal, unofficial gathering. And they brought false witnesses forward who were willing to testify against Jesus. The problem was is that none of them knew anything. They couldn't think of a single thing to say. Well, finally, two came forward and they said that Jesus said, I'll destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Well, obviously, Jesus can't be speaking of the actual temple. It took decades to renovate the temple. And we know from the Gospels, he was speaking of his own body. So finally, though, the high priest had something that he thought maybe he could make stick, and so he questioned Jesus about it. But Matthew 26 says, but Jesus remained silent. And so the high priest questioned Jesus directly. He asked him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And if you harmonize the parallel accounts of Mark 14 and Matthew 26, Jesus said, you have said so, I am. But I tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And we saw this last time. The high priest had a fit. He tore his robes. He cried blasphemy while those around Jesus spit in his face. They slapped him. They hit him with their fists and they mocked him. And again, all Jesus did was give a truthful answer to a direct question. But I want you to notice something that he's not doing. He's not pointing out the illegality of the trial. He's not protesting how he's being treated. He's not even proclaiming his innocence. He's just taking it. We get to a third trial. At dawn, the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem council, was finally gathered, and the council questioned Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. Luke 22, beginning in verse 67, records this answer. 
If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. They said, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Actually, they heard it from their own lips, not his. And notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't make a case. He didn't offer a defense. In Bible Training Institute, we recently went through the countless biblical proofs of the deity of Christ. Imagine how perfect a case Jesus could have made. Imagine at that moment if he would have said, let me begin with Genesis 1 verse 1 and let me walk you through the entire Old Testament to show you that I am who I say I am. But he didn't do it. So he goes to a fourth trial now before Pontius Pilate. And as the Roman governor, Pilate wasn't concerned with religious issues. The the concern that brought uh, him to the forefront was that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. That could pose a problem for a peaceful Roman occupation So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you have said so. He goes to a fifth trial before Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee who happened to be in Jerusalem. Now, we said this last time, Herod was excited to see Jesus. He thought maybe Jesus would do a miracle and provide some entertainment for him. He questioned Jesus at some length. Luke 23 says this, but he made no answer. So Herod and his soldiers mocked Jesus and they sent him in mock king's clothing back to Pilate. And he's tried for a sixth time before Pontius Pilate once again. And at this point, we know that Pilate didn't think Jesus was guilty of anything. He was thinking correctly on this to this point. But to avoid a riot from the huge crowd that was gathered, they were, they were desperate for Jesus to say something. The crowd was desperate for Jesus to be uh, killed and Pilate was desperate for Jesus to say something to defend himself. The crowd is shouting, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. And so Pilate had Jesus flogged. The soldiers added to the mock king's clothing that Herod's men had put him in. They put a purple robe and a cruel crown of thorns on his head. Maybe that would be enough. Maybe that would appease the crowd. Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? He's trying to scrape together some sort of defense for Jesus with which he could release him. But John 19 verse 9 says, but Jesus made no answer. Pilate tried to encourage Jesus to say something. John 19 verse 10 says, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And again, Jesus didn't defend himself He just made a little note to correct Pilate's error. He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Thus, Jesus condemned Israel over Rome. And that was it. Six opportunities to defend himself. Any of those times, he could have said such truth, such weighty, full of Bible truths that they would have had no choice but to relieve him, to, to release him. Over and over again, Jesus said nothing except to correct misconceptions, and that's it. How did it all end? It's so sad. John 19, verse 16 says, So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. 
So Jesus, instead of defending himself, he entrusted himself to God. The God who was to pour his wrath out on Jesus for the sins of others would come through for Jesus because of his innocence, because of full payment being made, and he would raise him from the dead. In fact, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, describes how Jesus was silent. Why? Because he trusted God. 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his father, even when his father would take off the robes of father and put on the robes of judge and pour all the wrath for all who would receive Christ onto his own son. Well, there's a third stage of the humiliation of Christ, his crucifixion and death. His crucifixion and death in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now, Isaiah gives a commentary on what his generation, meaning his peers, those who were living when he was alive, what they thought was happening, or rather, he gives commentary on what they didn't think was happening. It it seemed that the death of Christ was purposeless. It was pointless. He didn't seem to be dying a hero's death for a noble purpose. He seemed to be dying a death that he didn't have to die. He had six opportunities to exonerate himself, and he didn't take them. And so Isaiah asks prophetically, did anyone understand that he was being offered as a sacrifice by God for God, unto God, as God? Did anyone get that? Did anyone understand that it was by this act of sacrifice, this penal substitutionary death, that God would redeem and save his people Israel and then he would save every nation on earth? No. Instead, they walked by, they mocked him, they mimicked him, and they teased a dying man. Isaiah says he was cut off out of the land of the living. This is a verb that represents, if I could put it this way, a string of violence in the Old Testament. It speaks of death and darkness and hopelessness. The same word is used in 1 Kings 3.25 when Solomon says to the women who are fighting over one baby, divide, cut off, divide the living child in two. Haman, the author of Psalm 88, describes the dead, quote, as those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Jeremiah, speaking for himself and representing the hopelessness of Israel after Jerusalem has fallen, he writes in Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 52, I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am cut off. It's a different word, same meaning. Daniel received a prophecy from the angel Gabriel that in Daniel 9 that the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, a prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ. In Ezekiel's prophecy, the same word is used when a dead and and hopeless Israel, having no hope because of generation after generation after generation of rebellion, They say prophetically to the prophet Ezekiel, our our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. We're doomed. We're done. But Isaiah 53.8 tells us that for his people, Messiah will be cut off. He will pay what Israel owes. He will render what is due to the Lord. So that someday, 
According to Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Why? Because Christ would be cut off instead of them. Because he would be a substitute. And when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, still there was no protest. One of the Roman guards would have taken a nail and a hammer and gotten ready to hammer this nail through one of his wrists and Jesus didn't say, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He didn't say, do you know who I am? He didn't say, do you know what's going to happen to you? He didn't say, do you know what kind of power I have? He didn't say, do you know how hot hell is and what a place in there I have reserved for you? Instead, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How gracious and how kind On the cross, he was mocked and he was reviled by those passing by on the road and those watching. And yet he didn't open his mouth. And by contrast, some of you may have read just a few weeks ago, the state of Florida executed 47-year-old convicted killer Eric Scott Branch. He was convicted for the 1993 assault and and killing of a 21-year-old college student named Susan Morris. Susan would never marry. She would never have children. She would never live a life. Her family would never see her again. And Branch, according to Genesis 9, is guilty of taking of human life and therefore by the authority given by God to legitimate governing authorities and institutions, his life was to be taken. And so his execution was both biblical and legal. And yet, as he was being executed, he screamed three times, murderers, murderers, murderers. The hypocrisy of that is overwhelming. He who took Susan Morris's life. Branch was an unrepentant, guilty murderer, shouting accusations at those who would bring him to justice. Jesus, on the other hand, was pure and holy and sinless and perfect and a spotless man, guilty of nothing But he went quietly to a humiliating death for you and for me. There's one more stage of the humiliation of Christ, his burial. His burial. Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. They made, it's a word that means assigned his grave with the wicked plural, and a rich man, singular, in his death. What does this mean? Well, we need to make an important distinction here because in Hebrew, if, if Isaiah was simply making a, a comparison between different classes of people, such as the wicked and the rich, he would have used two singular nouns. But he uses a plural, wicked men, and a singular, rich man. What does this mean? Well, Jesus was originally assigned a shameful grave with the two criminals with whom he was crucified, but instead he would receive an honorable burial. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57, records, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and 
He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Joseph recognized what the end of verse 9 says, that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He recognized that Jesus was an innocent, good man. And he wanted to give him a burial indicative of the true life that Jesus had led. I find it ironic that God gave Jesus a man named Joseph to take care of him and honor him at his birth. And he gave Jesus a man named Joseph to take care of him and honor him at his death as well. A little interesting note here. When Isaiah said they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, death is plural, literally in his deaths. This is what's known in Hebrew sometimes as a plural of amplification or a plural of majesty where where the plural is referring to a singular event, but it's intensified with this plural emphasis. Isaiah is not just pointing out the death of Christ. He's pointing out the supreme death of Christ. He's pointing out the magnificent death of Christ, the significant death of Christ, the noteworthy death of Christ. And when his generation thought his death was a pointless death, in fact, it was just the opposite. It was a momentous death, a a weighty death, a history-altering death, a saving death. We could put it this way. The death of Christ was the death to beat all deaths because the death of Christ signified the death of death itself. I can't wrap my mind around that. But that's why it's a plural of majesty that in his deaths, not only did he die, but your death died and all of death will die. So his burial in the grave of a wealthy man, a man who had influence and substance, a grave that said, this man did something that mattered. It was right, it was appropriate, it was honoring, it was worshipful. By the way, the unique nature and circumstance of the burial of Jesus makes it very, very easy to identify Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Find one other person who's been executed as a criminal, is about to receive a shameful burial of a criminal, only to have one of the most prominent members of Israel give him his expensive tomb. How many others? Zero. And so it reduces it down to know that this is Jesus Christ. Now it's important for us to understand that the burial of Christ is a key component of the gospel of our belief in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, verse 3, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. The burial of Christ is proof that he actually died. If there was doubt as to whether or not Jesus had actually died, then now there's doubt cast on whether or not the wrath of God has been satisfied. It helps us be precise in clarifying the truth about Christ. By the way, Muslims believe that Jesus didn't actually die but was taken straight up to heaven. They skip the atonement, and that's key for them. And listen, I, I find it beautiful, I find it ironic, I find it satisfying, if we could use that word, that Jesus was buried in a garden tomb, a, a tomb of wealth and provision. But the irony is that it was in a garden, a garden of Eden, that sin and death entered into the world and now in a garden tomb sin and death and the grave are defeated and they're crushed. So there you are you're standing before God and the the video screen comes down and the lights dim and the title comes up and with fear and trepidation you see the life and deserved death of and there's your name. 
And as the first scene fades in, maybe your knees are knocking because you don't know what's going to happen. Instead of seeing yourself, you see this touching scene of a mother holding a baby, a perfect tiny baby. Then you see a perfectly obedient 12-year-old child submitting to his parents like you never did. Then you see a life of compassion and perfection and sinlessness. And you see this man that you now recognize as Jesus living a perfect, flawless, faultless life, obeying every precept, every standard, and every law of God. And then you see him being arrested and tried and crucified and, and dying and being buried And the video goes off, and although the title had your name on it, you've been credited with the perfect life that Jesus lived, and the death he died for you has been received by God as payment. So what happened to your video? Where did it go? And maybe you whisper to the person next to you, what happened to my video? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. It's gone. The humiliation of Christ is instead of yours, it is for yours, so that rather than being humiliated before the Lord, you might be exalted and lifted up as a child of the living God. But we have to be identified with Christ. We have to be associated with him. We have to be in him in his death. This is why when we baptize someone, they go down into the water as one dying with Christ and they come up out of the water as one dead to self but alive in Christ. So from Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, we praise God for the humiliation of Christ because it was necessary to keep us from judgment and to bring us to the Lord. And I hope that tonight your gratitude to the Lord for the humiliation of Christ will increase your worship of him, increase your obedience to him, and increase your loyalty to him. That is my prayer for you. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent text which has been handled so much better by so many men for the last 2,000 years. And yet there it stands for us, Lord, to serve as a beacon of light, a beacon of thankfulness and joy for us. And we think of other texts in, in the Bible that tell us that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. We think of his condescension to come down and be a man to come to this sinful dirty world not just to be a human being but to die a human being's death and not just to die a human being's death but to die the worst most humiliating sacrificial death possible all for us and all that you might receive glory and we're so thankful as we perhaps peek ahead at the rest of Isaiah 53. We're so thankful that Christ is exalted and will be lifted high and he will be given a kingdom filled with subjects who love him. What a just and fitting reward for his sacrifice. And our part, how simple it is, it is to serve him, to love him, to obey him. Lord, might that be our prayer that as we think on the humiliation of Christ in our stead, in our place, that we might return to him that which is due to him, and that is honor and glory and loyalty, fidelity, and obedience. All for the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.